I, I'm thankful that there's been such a great foundation laid in these last few days about the will of God and the call of God. And in fact, Dr. Fisher really did a fantastic job of laying a good foundation for us, Pastor Shepard and uh, Brother Stancis, and, and now myself today as we talk about these specific callings. And I want to just reiterate uh, something about that, the fact of the matter that God's will is specific and that it is already revealed, that is God has told us what his will is, and we're all just supposed to be involved with doing it. Uh, did we all get that? Uh, God is involved with redeeming mankind, and it's our responsibility not to sit here and wonder, I wonder, am I called to ministry? No, no, no. We're all called to ministry. We're all called to proclaim the gospel, to see people discipled and grow up in Christ. And within that general will of God, God certainly equips and gives us special uh, callings and desires and giftings uh, for the way that we are to go forward and carry out his will. And so this means that uh, there is uh, something specific that God has given you a desire and even a gift in order for you to use that gift in order to fulfill the revealed will of God. And so sometimes I wonder, though, as we think if that's true, and, and it would be true in this context now of what I'm talking about, the call to music ministry, then why don't we see more? Why don't we see more young men called to lead in worship, to lead in music, and to develop this gift of music that God has given them? Why don't we see that more often? And there, there's many reasons why, and I, I'll give you some of the ones that I hear in my office frequently. Uh, one is because of a false ranking of God's callings, where I believe that, oh, there's this calling. Boy, if I'm called to be a pastor, boy, that's, that's the, that is the ultimate call of God on anybody's life. And so now we view a call to music maybe as a step down from a higher calling of God's will. Now, again, we're all involved with proclaiming the gospel. We're all involved with preaching in a sense. But when we falsely rank these callings, and this is the better calling, this is the lesser calling, we kind of get that idea in our mind. Oftentimes I see men who are so incredibly gifted in music running away from that calling because they think it's a step down. Another reason I often see is because of a false perspective of livelihood. I, I can't tell you the number of young men who've sat in my office and say, John, can I really actually get a job as a musician? Could I really actually, you know, find a position like that? Can I tell you this morning that in the last two weeks alone, I have had five phone calls from thriving churches begging me, is there someone at West Coast Baptist College who can come and lead our music program? That's just in the last two weeks. The list goes on and on and on. If you have skill in music and you're willing to develop that and answer that call uh, to music ministry, literally the options are endless. There's so many opportunities for you out there. And then another reason is because we fail to fully grasp the role of music in our worship and the importance of skill and mastery within that calling. That's kind of where I want to focus today. I thought, you know, should I come and talk about music in the terms of, you know, what, what is worship and uh, what, what are some musical standards that you need to follow? You know, is that really how we talk about the call of music ministry? And, and I believe that the Lord has led me today to talk about our role in general in this matter of worship as the means to establish the call of God to music ministry. And I want to say that because I want everyone in this room, regardless of what you're called to do, to realize there's something in this message for you. I, I'm not just speaking to musicians this morning. You don't uh, really have the license to just kind of check out and not listen. I think that there's something that all of us need to learn about worship this morning as we develop this idea. So I want you to take your Bibles to John chapter 4. We'll use this kind of as the springboard of our 
uh, message this morning and to build the case around what we're talking about, the call to music ministry. John chapter 4, you know the story of the woman at the well. We know that she meets Jesus and she's focused on, of course, who she is. And when Jesus asks water of her, she said, well, if you, if you knew who I was, you wouldn't be asking water of me. And probably in the back of her mind, she's thinking, if you knew all the sins I've committed and, and who I really am, then you definitely wouldn't want anything to do with me. And, of course, Jesus completely counters that and says, well, yes, but if you knew who I was, then you would have been begging me for water and I would have given it to you. I would have given you this living water. And it kind of becomes this battle. He reveals her sin. Oh, you must be a prophet. So now I'm going to make this about worship. And your fathers say we're to worship in Jerusalem. Our fathers say here on this mount. And then Jesus confronts her with this statement, removing all of her excuses about worship and says simply this, verse 23, the hour cometh and now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. We often hear about what God seeks, what he's looking for, and we maybe say, you know, he's searching for a man to stand in the gap, and, and we get excited when we hear about God's looking for someone to go and proclaim the gospel on that mission field, but when was the last time that you stopped and realized that God is seeking worshipers, sincere, authentic, in spirit and truth, worship? And so from this verse and from this that God seeks, we can see really three roles that I want to talk about today. We're going to talk first about the role of the pastor in worship. We're going to talk then about the role of musicians in worship. And then and in the conclusion of this message, we'll talk about the role of Christians in general, the role of the congregation. So notice, if you would, with me first, the role of the pastor in music and worship. <clears throat> I speak first of all to those who are called to pastor God's people, and I think we all would recognize that the call to preach is not necessarily a call to pastor, right? Uh, my call to ministry uh, it, when I was 16 at a camp in Romania, it was first a call to preach. I knew in my heart that I didn't want to do anything else with my life but be involved with regularly sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with other people regularly discipling, and we thank the Lord for the opportunity every Sunday we have uh, to minister in our adult Bible class and to open every Wednesday night like I did last night with a young couple uh, in discipleship and just teaching them the truths of God's word. But <clears throat> there is a specific call, as Brother Shepherd mentioned to us on Friday, for people to shepherd, to lead the church of God in, this, in the sense of a pastor. And by way of a thesis statement, I, I just simply want to say this, that pastoring is more than preaching. It is a call to spiritual leadership. It's a call to shepherd and to serve the people of God so I believe that the most influential individual in the worship service is the pastor. Not the musician, not the song leader, not the choir. It's the pastor. To understand this principle, we must first step back and understand the purpose of the church, the church gathering together. Now, I'm not talking about this big picture, mystical, you know, what's the reason the church exists, but specifically, why do we get together every Sunday? Why do we gather in together as Christians to worship? And so, letter A, notice the purpose of the church. We see, first of all, the purpose of the church is simply to bring glory and honor to God. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. We see, secondly, that the purpose of the gathering together is to develop mature disciples of Jesus Christ. Acts 2.41, then they that gladly received his word were baptized, 
And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And what happened next? And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. I hope this doesn't come as a surprise to you this morning, but do you realize that the church is for believers? The gathering together is for the saved. When we gather on Sunday, we're not preparing that service for the lost. It's for believers. How do we know this? Look, I want you to turn over to Ephesians chapter 4, and while you're turning there, listen to what the Bible says in Acts 20. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his blood. The, the leadership, the pastors, the elders that were there in that place, we recognize that their ministry in the word was first and foremost to the believing congregation, to the church of God. And everything else and anything else that you could think of as a purpose of the church is ultimately a byproduct of one of these bringing glory to God and maturing disciples of Jesus Christ. And so I want to see how this process begins. So let it be the process by which maturity takes place. I know I have to rush through some of these things a little bit, and I've written a number of different blogs and stuff if you wanted to delve into any of these more deeply. But what is the process by which mature believers are developed? Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11. This is great. And he gave some apostles... And some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Why? For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men, but... Uh, and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things which is the head, even Christ. So the purpose of the ministry of the word that happens at least in the gathering of the congregation is first and foremost, as you see here, to, to perfect, to mature the states so that they can do the work of the ministry. Uh, this is why your church service, when you're bringing people in, should not be crafted and designed, first and foremost, for lost people. Is evangelism truly a purpose of the church? Absolutely, but it's the purpose of the saints who are doing the work of the ministry to then go and evangelize in their communities. We often shirk this responsibility of evangelism, saying, oh, we come to church and that's where we preach the gospel, and we go home and we just don't talk about it. Uh, just bring lost church. And, and, and I don't want to say that that can't happen. I'm just simply saying when that becomes the purpose, you make a lot of very bad decisions about the philosophy that you incorporate into your church services. So how do Christians mature? We see that Christians mature through the word. This is the declared truth of God from the Bible. Uh, we believe in the primacy of preaching. All right. And if, if I were to maybe phrase it in a more simple way just for the sake of this message, we believe in the primacy of truth. If truth is not present, if it's not presented, if we don't believe the right truth about God, we can never worship him correctly. So there must be a centrality of the proclaimed word of God, and through that we mature. First Peter 2, 2, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. We mature, secondly, through the work of the ministry through doing the work of the ministry. Hebrews 5.14, But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use 
have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. You see, maturity happens not just as we declare the truth in our churches, but as Christians use the truth and exercise the truth and do the work of the ministry, ultimately that brings about the maturity in Jesus Christ. But then thirdly, we mature through worship. We mature through worship, which is the developing affection for God. The two commands in the New Testament, Ephesians 5.19, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and mel- making melody in your heart to the Lord. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So we're talking about the role of the pastor here, right? Uh, we've understood kind of the purpose of the church is for believers where our goal and our, our, our role as a spiritual leader is to bring them to spiritual maturity through the declaring of truth, through the work of the ministry. But how often do we neglect this area of worship? It's like you have your spiritual toolbox out here this morning and you've come to West Coast Baptist College and you are, you're sharpening your tool of your homiletics. Boy, you know how to study the Bible. You know how to open up and to deliver a message like nothing else. And you can preach and you can do it great. And that's fantastic. And you maybe you get some ministry ideas for the work of the ministry. I, I know how to counsel this situation. I know when this happens or how do I run a big event and how do I lead my life administratively to, to uh, mobilize the church for the work of the ministry. But how many of you are preparing to lead your church in the area of worship? It's almost like you get out in the ministry and you're like, yes, I have these tools that I got from West Coast, but then, uh, oh, worship, uh, musician, where are you? You, you, that, you do that. That's your job. Pastors, can I challenge you that your role in worship is simply this. You are fully unequipped to pastor the church of God until you learn to pastor their worship until you learn to lead them in developing the affections for God. So let me give you these applications real quick, Pastor. You must pastor the worship of your church. It's not the musician's job. It's not the staff's job. It's not the choir's job. It's your job. And when you sit in this chair, as all that's happening, and you're flipping through your Bible, or you're on your phone, or you're just kind of like looking around, you're not really even singing, engaging in that, you're not leading You're not leading by example. If you do not teach your church what it means to have affections for the things of God, you're not leading them. You should be actively involved in choosing the songs for your congregation. A pastor who passively just offloads that to someone else is not serious about shaping their affections and choosing the songs that they'll grow old with. He's not involved with knowing the truth and knowing what those, how those songs communicate that truth. And you must be willing to humbly study and, and often seek the counsel of other experts in that area of music and worship and realize that we're just fully unequipped. We're not ready to pastor if we're not ready to lead the worship of our church. Because that's how God brings Christians to maturity. We've tried just truth. Uh, a lot of people would say education solves all problems, but it doesn't. Right? Just because we educate people on something doesn't mean that they actually affectionately get involved, do they? There has to be this missing link between doctrine and duty, this missing link of devotion, of affection, of love for God that is only brought about through meaningful worship. So what then is the role of the musician? If the pastor is ultimately the leader of worship and the one who would, in essence, lay down the law... What role does the musician's skill or ability play in worship? More importantly, why should anyone even consider a life of musical training as a legitimate call of God on their life? 
And I believe that the most significant answer to that question is found in the nature of God's glory and his inherent beauty. You see, philosophers have long wrestled with that question, what makes humans distinct? Right? What makes them different? And the three things that they often point out are truth, uh, his sense of truth and his desire for truth, his sense of goodness, right? We recognize that being bad to other people is wrong, you know? And in every culture everywhere, there's always some sort of law that, that deals with relationships. But also they identify the fact that he is capable and able of identifying beauty, of seeing it, of sensing it. Now, Christians, we obviously know why this is, and we have regarded these desires as essential for knowing God. Honesty and falsehood point to the existence of absolute truth. Good and evil point to the reality of undefiled holiness. Beauty and ugliness whisper to our souls that there is such a thing as glory. Truth, goodness, and beauty were established by God, who is defined by all three. Are you all with me this morning? Can you just raise your left hand? If you copied me, you did it wrong. <laughs> there we go. All right. This, I know that this is a little bit complex, but if you follow with me, I think you'll see where we're going with this, okay? Beauty is simply defined as that which brings pleasure. But something is not beautiful because it brings pleasure. Rather, it brings pleasure because it possesses the inerrant qualities of beauty. And do you know where those qualities of beauty originated? With God. Everything of beauty that brings pleasure in the natural created world is merely a picture of the ultimate source of beauty and pleasure, our very majestic God. So as I mentioned before, we're often prepared adequately for the ministry of the word and for the work of the ministry, but we often neglect to grow in our pursuit of beauty. When we neglect the pursuit of beauty, we neglect pursuing one of the primary qualities of our God. And I, I kind of have to take a, a side trail before we can get back to talking to musicians for just a moment and just talk to you about the glorious and beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to see, first of all, that God is inerrantly beautiful and infinitely glorious and is the source of all earthly beauty. Isaiah 6, 3, he said, he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And what did the angels proclaim? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. God created us with an image-bearing nature, which means that we have a built-in sense of truth, a built-in sense of morality or, or goodness, right? And a built-in ability to perceive and to create things of beauty. Do you get that? God made us so that not only can we see and appreciate beauty, but we can also be involved in creating things of beauty. He has hardwired the source of ultimate satisfaction and pleasure into our very DNA. And so if the qualities of beauty are intrinsic and objective, then we have the responsibility to actively learn to recognize and appreciate that beauty, just as we have the responsibility to seek after absolute truth and the pursuit of God's beauty and glory are to be involved with actively reshaping our affections away from earthly pleasures earthly sources of satisfaction, and reshape those affections toward the eternal beauty and glory of our God until we, like Moses proclaim in Exodus 33, Lord, show me thy glory. But unfortunately, sinful, defiled humans can no longer withstand the full beauty and full disclosure of God's glory. 
Since the Garden of Eden, when the first man and woman hid themselves from the presence of God, man has been left with a longing, with a yearning, a desire, an emptiness, yes, that only God's beauty can truly satisfy. And from that time until now, the whole story of the Bible and the story of the gospel is simply God restoring to us his glory. Can I just talk to you a little bit about the beauty of the gospel? It began with God's creation. Yes, Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and all things were made by God, possessed in themselves the ability to reflect the absolute nature of God's beauty. And all of these things were intended to be enjoyed in the context of a loving relationship and full disclosure, full disclosure of God's glory. So when sin separated man from God, all creation and everything that could be found in earthly pleasure became merely the lens through which we could still see some, the remnant of God's glory that at this point we cannot fully see, we cannot fully comprehend, we certainly cannot withstand. So not only did sin separate us from that full disclosure of God's glory, but it also left us, it alienated us so much from that source of ultimate beauty that we began to believe that the beauty was found in the things themselves. This is the story of Romans 1. What does the Bible say? Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For uh, the invisible things of him from creation, back when there was that full disclosure, right? They are clearly seen from the creation of the world, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. And what, what's the culmination here in verse 25? Who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator. Do you realize that when we change the truth of God, when we fail to recognize that earthly pleasure is merely something that drives us to that ultimate pleasure that we can only find and satisfy in God, we begin to worship the things that bring pleasure. It's not a question of whether or not you are worshiping. The simple question is, what are you worshiping? And every day you give your affections, you give your life, you give your time, you give your energy into pursuing that thing that you think will bring ultimate pleasure. And if that thing is anything less than God, it will never satisfy. It will never fully fill that yearning in your heart. C.S. Lewis put it this way, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. For they are not the thing it, itself, they are only the scent of the flower we have not found, the echo of the tune we have not heard, the news from the country we've never visited. God has been actively involved through history and through creation in revealing to us again his glory, his beauty. But can I say this secondly here, that Jesus is the full manifestation of the glory of God. Look at this in John chapter 1, verse 14. He says, The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Man who had been alienated from the glory of God and the pleasure of God's presence for the first time since creation was able to gaze upon the express image of God. Do you understand what this means? 
Do you understand what I'm saying? Are are you listening what happened here? God who is infinite in glory, whose train fills the universe, we can never comprehend. We can't put him into a box. We can't really understand all that he is. And I could try to describe you to... uh, to him, to you, and, and tell you a little bit about him, but, but he's really indescribable. There's nothing I can really say that can fully encapsulate who God is, and yet God in all that infiniteness then takes humanity and cloaks himself in our humanity, and he who at one point, his holiness, would have consumed us in a moment, at that moment, we can then enjoy that relationship. We can see him, we can gaze upon him once again and see his full glory. He who at one point uh, could never be touched with our sinfulness now has come and has been willing to be touched by the feelings of our infirmities and to become our savior. Look, God is great, God is infinite, but God's beauty is most fully recognizable and observable in the person of Jesus Christ. And there's, there's all these things that you can pursue. And what, I guess what I'm worried about this morning is that you've probably come into chapel and there's something in your life that is satisfying you, something of earthly pleasure, and, and you're fully satisfied. Listen, if you are satisfied with something other than Jesus, you're merely feasting on the crumbs when Jesus offers you the very bread of life. You're drinking from the well and the reservoirs of this earth when Jesus offers you the very spring of living water. And unfortunately, you're finding pleasure in your sin. You don't realize, and I mean this with all decency, but you don't realize you're chewing on vomit. The vomit of your folly, of your sin. The simple truth, students, is that Jesus is all you'll ever need. But the real question is, is he all you want? Is he all you want? Now here's the beautiful part of the gospel as well. The glory of God revealed in creation, fully manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. And of course, his sacrifice, his death, his burial, his resurrection, our salvation through faith in him, it's glorious. But then did you know that God has now continued to us this day to reveal his glory? in the very pages of Scripture. You want to see God's glory? Here it is. Read it. Learn about Jesus. See the redemption story. The truth is now contained in the very word of God and all that we can know about him, his love, his glory, his beauty. Can I just ask you lovingly, students, have you even read it today? Have you spent any time basking in the glory and beauty of God found in his word. So let's come back around. We're talking about musicians, right? This is the glorious and beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ. And by the way, eventually, the full restoration of God's glory and beauty is when we'll get to stand before him and worship him for all of eternity. But is truth, like I just described to you, enough to inspire affectionate, authentic worship? More importantly, are simple words adequate enough in expressing back to God all that he is in his beauty and glory and all that he has done? So I want you to see now then that it is the artist's role. I'm not going to say musician for now just because I think it's art in general, not just music, right? But it's the artist's role. He can wield the power of natural beauty, created beauty, the qualities of beauty that God has made in an effort to point others to the ultimate beauty and the glory of God. Have you ever tried to explain an experience? Like, 
uh, we've all been on a roller coaster, right? I know some of you maybe hate roller coasters, so, you know, if that's you, I'm sorry. Yeah. But if you've been on a roller coaster, have you ever been on a roller coaster and you got off and somebody's right there, they haven't been on that roller coaster yet, or maybe they've never been on a roller Have you ever tried to explain what a roller coaster feels like? Boy, you know, these loops and turning over and corkscrews and drops, and boy, this is exciting. And uh, I just, you just, you just had to be there. You had to experience it for yourself. Do you realize that I, we can stand up here and, and all of us who are you know, called to proclaim God's word and preaching, we can certainly try our very, very best to explain and to tell people about Jesus and try to explain that experience. And, and he's, you know, he's God and he's glorious and he's infinite, but ultimately, you just have to try it for yourself. <laughs> you kind of just have to taste and see for yourself. I, I'm not sure that I can fully explain, but watch this. Where words end, art speaks. When our words are no longer sufficient to really proclaim and describe who God is, he has given us the very means by which we can declare his glory and we can allow the beauty of his creation to be the very thing that declares his glory to those around us. In so much that someone like Andrew Fletcher, the philosopher, writes this, he said, let me write the songs of a nation. I do not care who writes its laws. The songs are, that we sing most vividly and clearly depict our affections and our values. So truth, skillfully married to a creative art form that expresses the natural qualities of God's beauty, is the most powerful form of expression and communication available to the Christian. This is why Bible truth that you've heard so many times, you've maybe read so many times, you've heard so many times spoken, can come alive anew and afresh and in an unjaded manner, leaving you uh, in complete speechless wonder before God. That's why the duet we heard even just a moment ago, if you were paying attention to the words, boy, they inspired beauty in the, in the power of the gospel. The fact that he who I was in charge of killing, now through that death, I'm made alive. I'm given life. That's a beautiful Things. Why, why is it like that? Why does art and why does beauty uh, have that effect? Well, first of all, because beauty attracts. This is why addictions are so powerful. This is why when you find a source of pleasure, you find yourself going back again and again and again because beauty attracts and pleasure attracts. And when we find that excitement, when we find the beauty, it is something attractive. Beauty also inspires creativity. Simply seeing, well, if there's musicians in this room, you probably know what I'm talking about. Somewhere along the line, you were a, a third grader or seventh grader, and you heard somebody get up here and just sing. And it was beautiful. And it was, you were just so moved by uh, their artistry and, and the beauty of the music they made, in so much that it even inspired you to a life of studying how to sing. Teaching your children how to sing is really sim as simple as putting in front of them constantly beautiful music, because it's attractive. It inspires them. It wants, makes them to want to be a part. Thirdly, beauty arouses belief in God. Psalm 40, verse 3, And he hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. Preachers, this is why you must understand that the song service is so much more than simply the prelude to your preaching. Does it prepare us for preaching? Of course. But not simply because music took place. It takes place when we effectively allow music to lift our eyes above the shallowness of earthly beauty and earthly pleasures and to fix them on our beautiful Savior. I read a tweet recently by one of our graduates said something along these lines. It is not a sin to be relevant. I am connected. 
not conform. Look, I understand relevance. I understand that we need to apply the Bible message in a way that our culture can, can understand it, can see it, and can understand the gospel message. But listen, the problem with that is when we focus so much on connecting with our culture that we fail to, ne- to connect our culture with God. Stop trying to have a service where God shows up. Instead, focus on creating an atmosphere that ushers your church into the very presence of a glorious God. We don't come to church to experience culture. We come to church yearning and longing for you to show us Christ. To rise us above these earthly pleasures. To bring us into the presence of God. These are so, this is so much more important than musical style. And I know that's kind of like where we always end up. That's where the arguments start and that's where they kind of end too. That's like the lowest level of this whole discussion. What matters here is beauty. What matters here is the glory of God and connecting our culture with God's glory and God's beauty. So then, the musician's role. We're finally there. <laughs> The musician's role is to help inspire awe and wonder in the glory of God. How? Through skillful mastery of your craft. You say, is it a legitimate thing for me to pursue musical training as a life calling? Not everybody can do it. There's people in this room that as much as you may want to, there's not the built-in maybe aptitude or skill to really take it to a, a, a level of mastery. But there are others of you Holy cow, you could get up here and you could just tear this piano apart. You could sing a solo that would just uh, amaze all of us. But ultimately, your purpose here as a servant of the church is not to wow us with your craftsmanship, but to allow the beauty of the music that you create to point us to the beauty and the glory of God. The Jews understood this. Okay? Psalm 33.3, it says, play skillfully with a loud noise. Jewish temple musicians had to be uh, men who were already 30 years old, who had already undergone five years of musical training. And yet some of us think that it's okay that, boy, I, I've never, never really practiced much. I know, know much about singing, but bless God, I'm going to get out here and I'm just going to do my best for the Lord. And that's fine. I understand that there's, there's beauty and authenticity, but don't sacrifice artistry on the altar of authenticity. God's beauty demands more of us. He's worthy of more. Is authenticity important? Sure. There's nothing more unlovely than a musician who thinks that the beauty is in himself. But when we skillfully use the craft, the gift, the talent that God has given us to make something beautiful so that others can think about and see the beauty of God, then we have served our church. We do this by creatively presenting truth and beauty. We learn the science of musical theory because it's the historically proven method of being aesthetically pleasing to the human ear. We write poetry that inspires a new perspective on timeless truth. We use creativity that God gave you to develop and to create beautiful tapestries that help to shape our affections toward God and toward his word. And then I'd say thirdly, your role is to inspire awe and wonder in God by the careful maintaining of a heart for God. Yes, we're going to tell you to practice because you need skill. You, you need beauty. You need to master that. Uh, we tell you to be creative with finding new ways to present truth in a different way that, is, uh, that, that uh, breaks down our preconceptions about it and leaves us again with that awe and wonder. But again, if there is anything more ugly, it's, nothing, it's, it's this. It's simply this, that you, the artists that are full of yourself, thinking that somehow you are the source of that beauty. And if you ever allow that to be in your heart, you fail in your mission. How dare you even imagine absorbing any of the praise as if it was from you? 
God put that in you. God gave you that ability. And it's your job simply to use it to reflect back to his glory to his beauty. So by application, you must know the word of God. You must develop your skill to mastery. You must realize that your role is first and foremost that of a servant. Can, is music ministry a call? If God has gifted you and God has given you that enablement, then I believe that you have a responsibility to develop that so that you can constantly do exactly what I just described and inspire awe and wonder in the church that we may shape our affections toward God and toward his beauty. It's legitimate. It's real. This is a question that I've, I've struggled with myself, wondering, uh, can I really be called to music ministry? What is, and, and I just believe if God's given it to you. And by the way, I'll say this too, musicians. Some of you could get up here and play this piano with no practice. Some of you are content to go week by week by week. You'll play the choir song. You'll play the offertory. You'll sing the solo. And you'll make no effort to improve. Can I say that you are just as guilty in that moment of not pleasing God? Unless it's a daily, constant strive to do better. How can I better display God's glory? How can I better play my instrument or sing the song that I may glorify God? So what about the rest of us? I'm not the pastor. I'm not necessarily the skilled musician. So what's my role? What, what about everyone else in here? There are only really two biblical precedents for worship. When you read the Bible, when you read this book of Psalms, and you kind of see every time that God seemed to be pleased by the worship of his people, there are really only two elements involved. Passion and participation. And while there, were, there are those who have trained and skillfully prepared to praise him, and there are those who will declare his word to us, uh, they are the servants of the whole and God is most pleased when the entire congregation passionately engages in singing his praise. Those precedents, participation and, and, and passion, means that it is absolutely wrong for me to think, or for me as a pastor even to structure my music program in such a way where it seems like these people up here are vicariously carrying out the praise on our behalf. Uh, it's almost that priesthood mentality, right, where there's kind of like an interceder between us and God. No, what God is interested in is every single one of you lifting up your voice and from your heart singing his praises passionately every single time. So don't come into chapel and when the song service starts, just, mm, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure it's okay. Do your thing. Yeah, musicians, okay, let's get to the preaching. No, at that moment, we are here to facilitate your praise. We are here to prompt your praise. We are here to encourage you to get involved in singing. We're not doing it on your behalf. So then, if I need to have passion, I need to passionately participate, what are some right responses then for me as a congregant to worship? Uh, one, one theologian did put it this way. He, he identified seven Hebrew words that describe our response in worship and, and what worship ought to inspire in us and how we ought to respond to our singing and to the praise. The first word is the word yada, which simply has this idea of extended hands of praise. It is the, uh, the offering up of praise fully from our heart. And the Bible also qualifies that, doesn't it? He says holy hands, right? It's when uh, we're right with God and when we're living a way that pleases God. Then it's the offering up, the holy hands, the offering of praise to God. There's the word halal, which is exuberant celebration. When was the last time that you would describe your worship on Sunday as exuberant Joyful celebration. 
I tell you what, there's an event coming up very soon where that ought to characterize every moment of our singing. When we get to Resurrection Sunday, that's what it's all about. And there's nothing sad or gloomy about that. It's the resurrection. It's our hope. It's our joy. And it ought to result in celebration. There's the word zamar, which is the musical word for musical praise and singing. Our praise ought to take the form of musical singing. There's the word toda, which has to do with confession. It's me declaring to God that I am hopeful of the future of what God will do. There are times you'll come into chapel and you'll come into church and you are in an impossible situation. Uh, you have no ability to really understand your circumstance, and you have no idea where you're going to go from there. You have a bill you cannot pay. You have a, a class that you cannot pass, that you, whatever the situation is. And that moment of singing is your opportunity to respond to God and say, you know, I'm in an impossible situation, but I confess that you are God, you are in control, and I have faith in the future because of who you are. It's your opportunity to align, to take your eyes off the worries that consume you and to realign them with the God who loves you who will provide for you, who will take care of you, and to worship him in confession there. There's the word barak, which has to do with thanksgiving for what God has done. Sometimes you need to come to chapel, and you hear the singing, and you know, my bill just got paid. I just got to see somebody saved. I just passed that test that I thought I'd never pass, or whatever the situation may be, and it's just thanksgiving. Thank you. I sing your praises because I'm thankful. There's the word uh, tehillah, which is the idea of spontaneous singing. You know, sometimes when you see the work of God, it kind of just prompts you. I just, I just want to sing. <laughs> have, you ever, have you ever stood up maybe on a mountaintop or maybe overlooking the Grand Canyon and like you don't know anything else to do but just to start singing, how great thou art, or something like that. That's, just, that's what wells up inside of you. That's this idea of spontaneous praise. And then there's this idea of shabach, which is to shout. And the real emphasis of that word is this, Unity. You know the most beautiful picture to the world of the glory and the beauty of the gospel and the glory and beauty of our God is when Christians can come together from all different backgrounds, from all different walks of life, all different ethnicities and cultures, and in unity agree on the truth about God and together shout his praises from the bottom of their hearts. That's something the world doesn't understand. They don't get that. And that's a response that we have in this opportunity of praise. The fact is this, student, the Bible makes room for diversity in our responses. You know, some of us are going to have a different response of those seven. We're not going to all respond the same way all the time. But the Bible never approves of passivity, especially when it comes to the worship of the one true God. And if you are guilty of passively approaching the singing, the praising of God, then you are committing a great sin before him. He wants us to passionately participate every single time. Beauty is the relic of Eden, a remnant of what is good. It comes from a deeper realm. It trickles into our hearts as water from the crack in a dam. And what lies on the other side fills us with wonder and fear because what lies on the other side is God. What lies on the other side is glory, and we were made for glory. We're all called to worship. This isn't for some and others. We're all called to worship God. Each of us has our role, pastors, musicians, congregation. May we all fulfill our role to the honor and to the glory of God. And may we never put our calling 
as on the bottom shelf as something that's not important. Musicians, we need you. Pastors, we need you to lead. Congregations, we need to praise our God.